Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Stephen Kiley. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. I'm starting to get spoiled. I'm starting to use my, my little computer for my notes, and I know one of these days the screen is going to go black. And uh, I'm going to need my inhaler. I want to talk to you for uh, a little while tonight. We've got plenty of time. I want us all to relax. I want to talk a little bit about Christmas and um, tell you that there is, a, there is a personage in the world, a presence in the world that wants to steal Christ from Christmas. It's not its first attempt, and we're going to actually look at the first attempt to steal Christmas, and that happened a long, long time ago. I don't know about you, but once in a while, I watch a Christmas show, and um, there's a couple that we like, the Waltons, the Homecoming. Uh, it seems like we have watched that every year. And, but the one I kind of think is cool, and it's a little juvenile, is the, the Grinch Who Stole Christmas. And my, my favorite part probably would be where the Grinch dresses up his dog like a reindeer. And um, they go down to Whoville. And he's, the Grinch is like Santa Claus, but he's not there to get, give gifts. He's there to steal their joy because he cannot stand the sounds of happiness and joy and unity that comes from the little city of Whoville. And uh, I think Satan is jealous of the benefits and the blessings that the church has. He's very unhappy when he sees peace and unity and power inside its walls. The sound of praise just drives him completely bonkers. And he's got a purpose, and he'll dress himself up in something and try to slip into the Whoville and steal the presence in our case, the presence of God. So that when we come to church, we're not necessarily feeling the presence of God, but we're involved more in the program of God. I think all of us have, if we want to admit it or not, have a little bit of the Grinch in us. Uh, hopefully not as much now as you had before your salvation. But I still think that all of us have a little bit of the Grinch. And I remember when I was younger, probably about 19 years old, I was uh, living in Oak Creek, maybe about 18. Um, we had a heavy, heavy rain one day. I bet you we got a couple inches of rain. And I was driving down Pennsylvania Avenue, and uh, the water was actually covering the road in spots. And traffic was going real slow. It was probably about four inches deep. And I looked up ahead, and I, I saw this car coming. And they were driving real slow. And they seemed all happy and content, him and his wife. And I noticed their window was down. And I don't know why I did this. But all of a sudden, I got this feeling of tromping on the accelerator 
at the last minute. And I did it, and when I looked in my mirror, a wave of water, and he was trying to find a handle on his mirror to roll up the window, a wave of water just swept in through the window. And I did like the Grinch. <laughs> but see, we all have a nature in us trying to disrupt someone else's joy because we don't have much ourselves. A negative person will come into a place where there's a positive spirit and try to destroy it himself because he's jealous of it. I remember even at Christmas time when we were first married how... Um, I oftentimes, and it was more for one reason or another, we said, well, why do we give presents? You know, we all know we like each other. Why waste all the time going to the store and wrapping the gifts and buying the gifts? And it's a lot of work. And I remember telling my wife, I said, well, well we know we love each other. And I know you're just going to buy me a shirt and other things that you would normally buy anyway, so why don't we just bypass that? And she looked at me like I was the Grinch. Because Christmas is about showing our affection to others by giving them something. Something that we have invested in. And the Bible gives us that principle by saying, Give, and it shall, given, it shall be given back to thee, Good measure, pressed down and running over. But I have found that the greatest gift of Christmas is not the gift that I receive. It's the gift that I watch someone open that was given from our household. And Jason's looking at me. I know he's thinking it right now. He's saying, Dad, you don't even buy a gift. Ah! I and my wife are one. Amen. All the men say amen, all right. But after um, I was filled with the Holy Ghost, I was about 20, 21 years old, uh, I started to change my attitude about how I felt about giving. I was going in 1974, 75, I went to ABI up in St. Paul. And uh, I stayed there and got my, my degree there. But I remember the first Christmas I came home, the first December, how I'd been away from home now for three months, four months. And I was so anxious to get back and see everyone back in Oak Creek and my parents. But our cook, her name was, uh, I don't know her first name. Was, first name was, we called her Sister Wasco. And she was related to Dale Aaron, who was a pastor here in Milwaukee. Was actually mother, uh, Sister Aaron's mother. And she asked me um, on the night that I was going to go back if I would work, stay late, because she needed to get her kitchen duties done. And she had a whole mess of gifts to send to her family back in Milwaukee, and she wasn't going to be able to be there for that Christmas. And I remember how... I was so impatient, I wanted to go so early because 9 o'clock, I could have almost been to Milwaukee if I left at 4. But I waited and I said, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And I remember so 
many details of that night. I remember she had given me brownies and fudge and she loved to cook and the car smelled. I can remember the smell in the car after we got all the gifts inside and half the back seat was full and the trunk was full. And I started off from St. Paul and as I was driving just near the state line on 94, I had a, a CB in my, my car and I thought that it would help keep me awake. I would just talk to truckers all the way home, you know, just to try to keep my mind alert. And sure enough, it was about 9.30, and I heard a uh, message on the CB. It says, hey, can somebody please help me? Uh, I am broke down. I need to get back to uh, Nielsville. I need to get back to Nielsville. I need a ride. Can someone give me a hand? And I, re I looked at my mile marker, and I realized he was just a couple miles ahead of where I was. And it was pitch dark. You know, here it's only 7.30. Imagine 9 o'clock. I didn't know who this guy was, but I thought, Lord, what do I do? I could actually take him as far as Black River Falls, and he could maybe catch a ride from there to, I think, no, it's Highway 10 that runs into uh, Nielsville, but I would give him a ride to that point. And so I said, in Jesus' name, and I pulled over behind the truck, and here come two of the most rugged-looking guys you want to see, hair down to their shoulders, and they hadn't looked like they showered since water was invented. And they came back, and I said, well, Lord, here we go. And I opened up the door, and uh, one got in the front, and another one got in the back, and we started on our way, and he just let me know that the company was going to pick up the truck, and he was going to go head back home. But as we started to drive, I started to talk to them about the Lord. They, the one in the front seat was so hungry for, for truth. And I, I think I don't even need to explain what happened because you've probably felt it before that the more I talked to him about my experience with God and how much God meant with me, to me, the more anointing or the presence of God seemed to fill not only myself but the, the interior of the car. Has anybody ever felt that? It's like, I know they've got to feel this. I'm saying, it's, it's almost like the fudge. You, you've got to smell the fudge. It's just so powerful. Can you, and the man was just on fire to know more about it. And when we got to Nielsville, it, actually, when I came to Highway 10, I decided, well, I'll just drive you home. I'll just take 10 across to, what is it, 51. And I'll take 51 back and, because I didn't want to stop talking. Well, I got him to Nielsville, I dropped him off, and I felt such a presence of God. I, I said, and remember, this is just around Christmas time. I said, God, you know, I, I feel so close to you right now. I can feel you in the car. Wouldn't it be great if you could just do a little miracle? I, I think I could handle it, like maybe light the sky up or send a meteor, or, you know, I think I could take it. And and as I'm driving, I say, why don't you do it right now? And when I said the word now, for some unknown reason, all the stuff that was above my visor slid down and hit me in the face. And I inhaled very sharply, and I said, God, maybe I'm not as prepared for this as I thought I was. But here was my Christmas miracle. After that happened, I looked down at my gas gauge, and it was on empty. 
I had forgot that I was going to stop on the way on 94 and get gas. Of course, if you stay on 94, you'll always find some gas somewhere along the way to pick up it, even in the wee hours of the morning. But here I am in Nielsville, and it's probably about 1 o'clock, 11.30, 12 o'clock, maybe 1 o'clock in the morning, and I'm on empty. And I, I got that sick feeling in my stomach like I am in a pickle. I don't know anybody out here. I'm not going to call anybody at 1 o'clock. Worst case scenario, I'll end up sleeping in my car, but it's cold out. And so I got on the CB, and I, I don't know why I said it, but everybody else said it. I said, Breaker 19. There hadn't been a voice on that radio for hours. Nobody, there's no chatter. There's nobody out there. Nobody's that dumb to be out in that part of the country at 1 o'clock in the morning. And I didn't expect anyone to answer. And this strong, strong voice came back over the CB and it said, Yes, sir, can I help you? I said, I am out of gas. And um, can you tell me of a station that might be open at this time of night. Now, I didn't give them any location. I didn't tell them what direction I was heading in or where I was at. And the, the voice came back and said this, there is a station right in front of you, and I'm right behind you. Now, you'll understand my emotion when I tell you the rest of the story. I thought, really? And I said, well, thank you. And I, I drove a few miles ahead. And sure enough, it was, I think it might have been like a Hudson. You remember the Hudson stations? Here was this gas station open. And then they didn't have the credit card pumps. You had a person. You had to pay. And I, I pulled into the gas station. I saw that it was open. But before I went to the pumps, I turned my car so it was facing Highway 10 so I could blink my lights and let the person know that I made it and I was so thankful for their reassurance and for helping me out. And no one ever came. And the voice, the Lord spoke to me. He said, you wanted the sky to light up, but what you really needed was gas. And I want to tell you that many of your prayers are for things that you don't need. When God is saying, you ask amiss. And so I remember that Christmas and I, I just shouted for joy the rest. I never got tired the rest of the way home. I said, God, you are so awesome. You take care of me every day of my life. And if you were to think tonight and I were to give you a sheet of paper and have you write down a time in your life where God did something supernatural, where you maybe heard the voice of God or you saw his his divine hand in a situation, it would probably bring that same goosebumps that it did then. But to go on to the negative side for a little while tonight, I want to talk to you about a person who tried to kill Christmas. I'll tell you, this year, I'm as happy as a pig in mud because right now I see the lights and I smell the pumpkin pies, right, Sister Imel? And I, all the things of Christmas and the cookies. And it's exciting to me. I love that time of, of the year. But this person despised it. He hated it a hundred times worse than, worse than the Grinch did. And so 
he didn't like the bright lights or anything that resembled Christmas. Of course, we all look at the songs that encourage us. Tis the season to be jolly, joy to the world. Hark the herald angels singing, I'll be home for Christmas. All those songs that you love to sing. Grandma got ran over. Well, no, that's not the... Whoops, that was the wrong, wrong record here. And when you look around in the sanctuary, do you remember when you first walked in the sanctuary last week after the decorations were up? Even after putting them up, I thought, boy, it feels so much more comfortable in here with the, the wreath and the, and the decorations. It felt more like a living room, a living room, a place to relax. But this person was evil personified in flesh. In Matthew, the second chapter, we read about, in verse 1, we read just a couple verses here. It talks about the visit of the Magi. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the, the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, maybe you've never seen this first, but maybe after I share some thoughts with you about Herod and the character he was, you'll understand the next verse a little better. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And not only was he disturbed, but all Jerusalem with him. Now, why would all Jerusalem be disturbed at the coming of the Christ child? They realized Herod, the murderer, Herod, the maniac, would do anything within his power to kill any threat. And let me share, I'll give you a little history. Herod was born in a pretty well-connected political family. Uh, he was a person that was destined, if you could look at life like a ball game, it was going to be a game of hardball and a life of power broking climbing up the ladder of, of power. When he was 25 years old, he was named the governor of Galilee. That was a very high position for a man that was 25 years old, even at that time. And the Romans were hoping that somehow Herod could control those unruly Jews uh, who lived in the area that they placed. In 40 B.C., the Roman Senate named him King of the Jews. That was his title. In the Roman Senate, they called him the King of the Jews. It was a title that the Jews hated because he was anything but religious. You know, he was the embodiment of the ultimate villain. And if you look at his character, he exhibited four classic character traits. Uh, he was, first of all, let me tell you that he was addicted to power. Have you ever seen anybody that just lives for recognition, to, to exert authority and power? If, if drinking uh, was like power, he would be an alcoholic. Uh, 
if power is defined as the ability to control resources in order to secure one's own destiny, then Herod, he was the epitome of power. His life and use of power can be summed up in three words. If you were to look at his life, the man was capable, he was crafty, and he was cruel. Um, after he became king shortly afterwards, to try to appease the Jews, he went out and wiped out several bands of guerrillas that were terrorizing the countryside. He tried in any way that he could to, through diplomacy, to try to deceive people into giving themselves over to his authority. And I've heard some say that if he were alive today, he could have probably even brought peace to Bosnia. But he was that type of person. He was very crafty. He, he arranged all of his relationships, anything that he did, all of his alliances with one reason in mind, and that was to produce a pulpit of authority. He could never get enough of it. His craftiness, if you looked at his life, there were no barriers. There was nothing that he wouldn't do. He had a morbid mistrust of anyone who might aspire to take his spot or take his throne. Now, I'm going to ask you tonight while I'm talking this way, maybe someone is going to come to your mind that you can think of even in our political arena that would live the same way. His throne was his recognition. Over the years, Herod was known to have killed many, many people. You want to know some of the people that he killed? His brother-in-law. Yeah. He killed his mother-in-law. He killed his own children, killed his two sons. He even killed his wife, the first of ten wives he had. You see, above everything else, Herod was a cruel killer, so that when we get to Bethlehem and we see the siege against the children that lived in Bethlehem uh, at the time of Christ, this was not something that was new to his nature. That's why Jerusalem shuddered when they heard the news, for they, know, they knew that Herod would do anything within his power to destroy a threat. He would murder just out of spite. Human life meant nothing to him. Do you know that Josephus, he's one of the Jewish historians that wrote during the time, uh, called him in his writings barbaric. Another contemporary of Josephus writes in his, his record of, of Herod that he was a malevolent maniac. So he had a reputation for cruelty. And it was in direct proportion to the power he possessed. At least you can say that he lived a consistent life. The second thing about Herod, he was preoccupied with his possessions. Herod wanted it all. He wanted to live like a Roman Caesar himself. And you know how Donald Trump has sometimes the little golden finger to invest in some things and turn them over and make them into success? Well, he would have been the Donald Trump of business at that time. 
Do you know that Herod built seven palaces? He built seven theaters, of which one seated 9,500 people. He built stadiums for sporting events. The largest stadium that he built held 300,000 fans. Do you remember Herod's temple? He built the temple in Jerusalem. Herod built the temple. Do you know that he would take and build cities in honor of, of Roman authorities? Caesarea, Caesar, Tiberius. Think of some of the cities in Palestine that have these Roman names. More than likely, they were constructed during Herod's reign. It was all for, his, for recognition of his power, might, authority, and wealth. He had another, another thing, and this would be number three. He was preoccupied with prestige. He liked to make an impression on people. And like I said, he built entire cities with the state-of-the-art architecture and amenities and the most uh, modern conveniences. Look at the aqueducts. Look at all the things that were built during that time. He was always looking for that recognition. He was driven. And he would not share it with another. But he had another fault, though. And this is a person that gets into a place of authority and a prestige, wants prestige, often has this last trait, character trait. It's called preoccupation with paranoia. Mistrust of everyone. When Herod was younger, uh, Herod's father's enemies poisoned him. In other words, I'm saying Herod's father was killed through a poisoning. That beset his son, Herod, the junior, uh, with paranoia. He went to great lengths to make uh, great uh, venues of protection for himself. Do you know that he commissioned tens of thousands of slaves to build over 10 emergency fortresses? Now, I'm not talking about little forts like Jericho. I'm talking about places that if I mention them today, you'll, they're still, in a, still there. They were all heavily armed and well-provisioned. Uh, he had an elaborate work, network of spies that he put within the public realm to make sure that there were no conspiracies. If anyone even mentioned anything against him, they would be executed. And he ruled for over 40 years until he clashed with another king, another king that was called also the king of the Jews. Some of the things that, the names of the fortresses, I don't know, I gave you a chance to think. Can you name one? A fortress that still stands today as a monument, Masada. How about Herodium? That mountain, that south, if you ever looked at a picture of, of Israel, there's this great fortress, there's this great big hill in the middle of a plain. And you take this winding road to get to the top of it. 
It was a fortress that he built that he could go to to be protected from his enemies. Paranoia. Now, with all that background, let's go a little further ahead to the final months of Herod's life. Herod is dying of a, a disease that's slowly taking his life. It's a very painful disease. It, it said that he would cry out and scream at night because of the pain. Some believe it was connect, connected to his kidneys, which led to gangrene inside of his, his torso, and he was slowly dying a terrible death. It says that his body, Josephus mentions his body was racked with convulsions. His breath, because of the disease, was extremely foul. His skin was covered with open sores. And now he's rapidly losing what little mind he has. But he's still the king. And that's when one day the, the visitors from the Middle East or from the East came and told him, about a new king of the Jews. Strange men with a strange question, where is the king of the Jews? And it says in Matthew 2 and 2, we have um, come to worship him. Now, do you remember what Herod said? I'll tell you what, guys, you go and find this new king and come back and tell me where he is, and I will worship him too. Really? Do you think there might have been a little bit of dishonesty in that statement? You tell me where he is, and I'll kill him. But it, you, it, here, let, let me look at here a little bit. The guy's dying. He's, he's got more money than he could ever spend in wealth, why are you threatened when you know in a short period of time you're not going to have anything anyways? But people that crave prestige and recognition and power will fight to the very end to keep it. I've noticed the older I get, the less important things are. It's more or less having a nice home that I can go into and having a little fireplace in the fire and food to eat, my family around me, boy, that's just this, that just makes me content. But not people like Herod. He had fought to gain his title and his position, and nobody was ever going to take it away. He felt that he owned his authority. He owned his position. But let me tell you something. Even in the church, no one owns their position. Everyone is placed in their position by God. And they can be elevated or they can be brought down and moved to a different position. When you think that you own what you're doing, you're falling into a same, the same sort of a trap that Herod did. Now remember the three words that I told you in the beginning that Herod was? He was capable crafty and cruel. He knew that in the ancient oracles or in the, in the scriptures it was written that the Messiah was going to be born. And he sent for his wise men to search the scriptures to find out where this child was going to be born. 
Not that he could worship him, but that he could destroy that child. And he found out the city was Bethlehem. Now we know that the wise men were spoken to by God and told not to go back to Herod and to return home the way that they came. But if you remember, the wise men came to see Jesus when he was in a home and a young child. And maybe sometime we'll have to get that corrected in, in some of the history that we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus was uh, seen by the Magi uh, when he was just a young child. They, they saw his star in the east, and it was a long trip. By the time they got there, they saw the mother with the young child in a home. So what Herod did, taking into consideration the time that the, the Magi saw the star and the time that they got to Jerusalem, he said that could be up to two years. That child could have been two years old when the Magi arrived. So Herod said every child under two years old, every male child shall be killed. Have you ever daydreamed like I do once in a while and thought about if you would have been a soldier under Herod and you were assigned to go into a city and take children, babies out of their mother's arms and run them through with a sword? How could you ever do that? To hear, to hear the screams in the city. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament talks about the cries of, in Bethlehem. Oh, Ephratah. It refers to the cries of Ephrata. He was evil personified. He would do anything from letting this child grow into the position that he was ordained to fill. And you know, some people will do that even today. They will try to destroy anything that threatens their authority. Why is it that our government is so afraid of Christians why is it that we try to wipe out anything that represents Christ? Peace, love, joy. Because it's a threat to their power. Because the church is a threat to wickedness and darkness. And so the Herod of our generation isn't just one man. It's become a system. Do you think that they enjoy Christmas? Not really. That's why they call it Xmas. That's why they bring a fat man in a red suit out and try to tell you that's the reason for Christmas. To try to distract people from the king of all the earth. The butcher of Bethlehem. That's what he was also called. Now, I'm just going to sort of wrap up a little bit. We have to be careful that we recognize a little bit of the Herod that's in all of us. You know, I, I don't want somebody to come and do my job better than me. You ever have that happen? 
You go on vacation and somebody does your job and you come back and they're saying, boy, he did a great job. Couldn't have been a lot good. <laughs> because we all fight for our position, our place in the herd. We all have an established pecking order. We're just trying to achieve a higher level. And some people will do things that are not Christ-like to try to get a little higher. But that's the opposite of Christianity. If you look at what the Bible says, if you want to be exalted, take the lower seat. If you want to be put in a place of recognition and prestige, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he'll lift you up. Who's the chief among all of you? He that is least among you shall be chief among you. And what does that mean, least? That person that is the most sensitive and humble amidst you shall have the greatest characteristics of Christ of those among you. That's why when Jesus got together with his disciples and they were fighting amongst themselves who was going to be greater, yeah, they had it. Those people were with Christ walking with him every day, listening to him teach. They watched him calm the storm and heal the sick and the blind, and they're still fighting. Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to sit on his left? Who's going to sit on his right? That's a little bit of the Herod in us, a little bit of that old nature creeping in. Jesus puts on the robe of a servant, and he goes and he tries to wash the feet of Peter, and Peter says, you know, no, I want to be like you, but I don't like that part of your nature. I don't want to wash people's feet. I want to yield the word of power. I want to cast out demons. I want to heal the sick. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Before you can get to the higher level in your faith, you've got to start out at the foot of a person. I, I hesitate to tell. I might have told you this story before, but I was radically touched by one of our ministers uh, when I was uh, in rehab for my knee. And pardon me if I told you this before, but I'm, I'm getting older now and I started forgetting who I am. Who's preaching, by the way? Anyways, this man came to visit me and I'll tell you who it was. It was Brother Rogers, Don Rogers. And I hadn't asked him to come. Matter of fact, I was so sick, I wasn't really encouraging anybody to come at that time. I just felt so bad. He came into my room, and I was sort of down, and he, he talked to me, and he, like a preacher, he gave me all the words in the scriptures, like I would use, oh yeah, I would use that one too for this. And, but he encouraged me. But then I had to do something that humans have to do, and I asked him to excuse me, and he left me for a little bit and then came back. Can I just tell you what it is? You won't get grossed out. It was, I, this may be, my, Lisa, turn the radio down if you're listening. He said, can I empty your urinal? And I thought, I don't know if I'd even want to get near that article. And when he did that for me, I said, you know what? I said, yeah, if you want to. Because I know the place I was going to be there would be there for an hour, two hours, who knows how long. 
But it left such an impression on me. I can't tell you what that meant to me. And I don't know if I'm just strange, but that a person would humble himself to do something like that for someone that's not even a member of his family. To see someone, I'm, another time, I'm over at Westwood and those like Brother uh, Barningham, you'll relate to this. I had a hard time getting my socks on. Did you get, could you get your socks on real good after your, your knee surgeries? Yeah, you're not telling me the truth. <laughs> yeah, that's right, he went like this. I remember I went to Westwood and I, after I got done, I, I was getting ready to go and I was going to get my sock on and I said, oh, how am I going to do this? And I bent and stretched and I, the sweat was rolling off my head because of the pain that I'm trying to reach it. There's, and I said, I can't do it. I'm either going to have to walk out of here with one sock on and one shoe off or I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I, I finally broke down and humbled myself. And in the, in the room, the changing room, the locker room, I asked for help. I said, can somebody help me? And it was so humiliating to me. And here comes this young guy over about the age of, of John and he says, can I help you? He's on the phone. And he says, hold on. And he put his phone down. He says, what can I do for you? I said, you know, I'm trying to get that sock on and I just can't do it. No problem. Can I help you with the shoe? There are wonderful people in this world. And we see the bad people. But if we can see what that meant to me, how it built me up to see someone that would be willing to go out of the way and, and be a servant. That's, a ser that's my wife's job, really, not really her job, but something she would do. Do you know the lasting impact you leave on people when you serve them? Serving them in an intimate way, even? They never forget you because you went above and beyond. And Christ went above and beyond for me, way above what was expected I shared with you uh, two weeks ago when I, I sat up here that after my surgery, I went into, I had an anxiety attack. And it was a tough time. I never, I can't remember having one of those. It was terrible. And I had that fear of death and dying. And I thought, where is this coming from? Remember I shared that with you? Since that day, since I've been back, God has given me victory over that, but he has led me to three or four people that have recently gone through the same question. And I began to realize that God brings me through just like he brings you through certain circumstances so you can put that person's sock on. So that you can, you know how to reach them where they're at, even if they can't do it themselves, you're there to help them. And all of a sudden I said, after the fourth person, I talked to another guy last night. And he said, you know, I had my knee done. And he said, I, I had an anxiety attack. I didn't know what to do. I was overcome with it. And I said, you know, I understand that. But let me tell you what God's done for me. 
And I, I am going to close, but I have to share this with you because it was a major thing to me. I was, I was unhappy with myself. I was totally disappointed that I would even have thoughts like that after all these years with Christ. That on the way home, last Sunday, after, this last Sunday after church, you ever have a time where God just speaks to you? I mean, he just talks to you. And you open up your mind and you accept that he is and you drive away the, uh, the unbelief that says, well, God can't talk to me. And he reminded me, Steve, I am never leaving you. I never left you. I'm always with you. All you need to do is just look beside you. I'm as close as, as the mention you mentioning my name. I will never, I love you with all of my heart. I needed to hear that. But why didn't he tell me that when I was in the hospital when I needed to hear it? I wanted to hear it there, I wanted, but I couldn't find it. I was like Elijah in the cave. I was seeking God's presence, and there was a fire, but he wasn't in the fire, and there was an earthquake, and he wasn't in the earthquake. And then God speaks to me on the way home, and he says in a still, small voice, here, i got a mission for you. I'm going to send you down to this other city, and you're going to get a helper, and you're going to, another protege, and you're going to train him up. He's so awesome. And as much as I hated that, I'm thankful that I went through it. And actually, to be honest, the more I've had this now, if I ever have to have the other knee done, I don't think it'll be as scary as this was because I know what to expect more. But tonight, I want to just leave you with this. There is the Grinch out here. And what he wants to do is he wants to ruin your Christmas He's going to try to give you bad news. He's going to try to dump something in your lap that you can't handle and to overwhelm you. But you've got to recognize he's just the Grinch and he hates Christ. And if he can sneak into Whoville and steal the gifts that God's given you, those, those monuments of the past, he will. Don't let him steal your peace and joy. Don't let him steal your faith. You just send him on his way and tell him, take that little dog with you. <laughs> Let's stand together. I do have to confess that I'm really enjoying my time off. It's going to be really hard to go back to work if I go. Because the one thing that I've learned is, and I just said it a second ago, and I think it was God reaffirming, God's got plans for all of us. What the plan that he has for you today may not be the plan that he has for you tomorrow. You may be doing something today, and you feel that that's the thing you're going to do until the day that you die. But God could be saying, no, no, I'm taking you, you're in a different stage of life, and I'm taking you to a different place now, to, to meet a different group of people. Feel the same excitement that you did when you were a kid. Running down the stairs. Fighting your brother, pushing your sister down. Trying to get to the tree first. Falling on the presence because you're in such a hurry. Do you remember those days? Your parents yelling at you and you're looking in the kitchen to see if the cookies are gone and if somebody drank the milk. 
my parents liars. <laughs> what about my church life? Can I still run in a church like that like I did when I was a kid? Am I fighting to get to the altar laughing and waiting to see what God has done if he's been there? Wanting to hear stories from people about what they got from God? I was thinking about one of the greatest gifts that God gave me, and I promise to close with this. It was a few years, a number of years ago, you'll probably remember it, I was here at this time when they discovered I had a brain tumor. And I was scheduled for surgery. That was probably eight, nine years ago. Yeah, I am a piece of work. I know I am. But if you remember how, as I went with my brother to, to, to uh, St. Luke's to finally schedule the surgery and get it into place, we had prayed about this, for this tumor for healing and they'd already told me what the results were going to be after the surgery I would have. I would have seizures for a while, and it would take a while for me to get back to normal. And when that doctor looked at me and he said, it's gone, how I felt. He hasn't healed me every time at the time that I wanted to. But you remember, I, I can remember running out of St. Luke's, shouting and laughing, I don't have it anymore. God healed me. That's a gift that keeps on giving to me all these years later. Remember, Steve? Do you remember that? Do you think I'm going to fail you now? I talked to Rick, my brother Rick about this, and he said that the Lord had talked to him when he was diagnosed with cancer because we were sharing this together the other night. And the Lord said to him when he shared his fear, he said, Rick, have I ever failed you before? If I haven't failed you before, why do you think I would fail you now? That's what Christmas is about. It's, it's not just Christmas in December. For me, every day that I wake up is a gift. And if I have a little less pain on one day than another, that's a gift too. Pretty simple, aren't I? All right, Lord Jesus, thank you for this time we've had together. I pray that you would... Uh, Anoint our minds to help us see the true meaning of Christmas. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org. At